0: Welcome to Beyond Politics on WKXL AM and FM at 101.9 in Manchester, and by podcast wherever you find your podcasts these days. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson, and we're here to talk about economy and money, because the top issue on everyone's minds these days is the economy, and especially the fast-rising prices that we're all feeling at the grocery store and the gas pump. Now, of course, the economy is always the top issue for Americans. In 1992, the Bill Clinton campaign famously boiled down the campaign message to, it's the economy, stupid. So, to understand what's happening in the American econ- economy, and most important, what's likely to happen to us next, we simply couldn't have a better guest than Dr. Mark Zandi. He's chief economist of Moody's Analytics, where he directs economic research. He's a recognized and trusted voice through his many, many appearances on major news media, outlets, outlets like CNBC, NPR, Meet the Press, CNN, and not to mention frequent testimony before Congress, and his regular briefings, on the economy for corporate boards, trade associations, policymakers at all at all levels. And unlike me who used to say I'm not an economist, I just play one on TV, Mark Sandy really is an economist and so we're going to get a direct briefing for all our listeners. Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hey, it's really good to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: So let's dive right into the deep end. Obviously, the aspect of the economy that's on all of our minds these days is inflation. And uh, the biggest question seems to be, how quickly will it ease off? And
1: while obviously you don't have a crystal ball. Uh, I do, Paul. I actually, uh, do. Well, I'm, I'm not sure I'm it bl- works, but I got one. So. <laughs> I, actually, I got, I got three. And I can oh, tell good. you a good story oh, good. about one of them, but okay.
0: Oh, good. But So when you look Deep into your crystal <laughs> balls, Mark Zandy. What signs are you looking for and what should we be watching?
1: On inflation. Yeah. I, well, look, I think it, and I say this great intrepidation, I think it's peaked because I think the reason or the print, there's a long list of reasons for the high inflation, but at the top of the list is the pandemic and the disruption to global supply chains labor markets, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has sent oil, gasoline, commodity prices skyward. So if you believe that the worst of the pandemic is behind us, not that it's going away, but that it's going to fade away as a factor in our economy, and that the worst of the fallout, economic fallout from the Russian aggression is at hand, then I think inflation has peaked. And I do think that if everything kind of sticks to, to script, by this time next year, inflation will still be high, but we'll feel better about it. And two years from now, inflation will be in a place where we're not really talking about it. But that that goes back to my views about the pandemic and, and the Russian invasion, and thus my intrepidation, because those things can go down lots of different paths, some of which are pretty dark. Sure.
2: And, of course, from Democrats' standpoint, because I can't help – I'm going to touch more on the politics of this for a second, but as a quick follow-up, how much lower do you think it will be by November, I think, is, yeah. the, is the question that they all have on their minds.
1: Not low enough. I mean, I think what really matters for the voter is the price of a gallon of gasoline, mm. and that's still headed north, right? I mean, the European Union just decided to sanction Russian oil that's a lot of oil that's going to come off the market and to make supply equal demand prices has now gone up. So gasoline prices nationwide are headed to $5 a gallon. And that makes people pretty upset. It means the very, the most visible price. And I think people use that as a benchmark for kind of thinking about not only inflation, but their general financial health. I mean, I was, I did, I, I don't drive very much now in the, in the pandemic period, but I did have to fill up my gas tank. And I'm feeling i my gas tank and the woman next to me was just railing because she just saw a hundred dollars for, she had to pay more than a hundred dollars to fill her gas tank. And I think that's how people feel. So maybe gas prices are a bit lower by the time people make up their minds around midterm elections, but they're not going to be low enough. So I I think it's going to be pretty tough for the Democrats.
2: Well, apparently some Republican activist entrepreneur is going around to gas stations with a sticker that says Biden did that and plopping it right on the gas pumps, which gets to my next question. A recent Politico morning consult poll shows that 37% of all voters think the president has a lot of control over managing inflation. And of course, that's 55% among Republicans who are all too happy to blame the president when they're feeling unhappy about inflation right now. So not that it's necessarily going to overcome that public perception, but just to set the record straight, how much control does the president have in moderating inflation versus say the federal reserve or or other factors in our economy? And what can he do And, and what can Congress actually do in terms of those supply chain problems and and fiscal policy where they they do have some influence to have an impact still
1: this year? Hey, Matt, I'd say for any survey, no matter how you ask the question, 37% are going to (laughs) answer in a certain way. So I'm not really sure what that means. That's true. If you ask people
2: how many people believe that the Loch Ness Monster is real, it is actually about that number. All right. About 33,
1: maybe 33%. I don't know. But yeah you're right so you're right it's that, kind of a baseline i'm not sure that's a big number kind of thing but anyway the president doesn't have a whole lot of power here to affect inflation i mean there's some things on the margin he can and has done but it, we talked about oil and gasoline i think that's kind of in the most immediate future the number one thing he needs to be focused on so he said okay we're going to release a, a boatload of of oil from the strategic petroleum reserve about a million barrels a day. And that's uh, equal to the uh, capacity of the nation's refining industry to process that oil. So he's giving the refining industry as much oil as they can take. And that, help, that helped. I don't know that it, it didn't, certainly didn't lower price, but I think it's ensured that prices haven't gone even higher than they've already gone. But that that's done. He, he, he took that step and I think it's a positive step, but not much more he can do there. He announced that he's going to go visit Saudi. The Saudi Arabians are the one nation on the planet that have excess capacity to produce oil. Mm. And so he's going to go there to try to convince them to produce more oil. They are stepping it up. I think they realize that at these prices, there's going to be demand destruction. People are going to stop driving as much and the demand for oil is going to hurt. And so in the long run, and, and there's going to be more push into renewables and, moving away from fossil fuel. They don't, they don't want that. So I think they want to get prices. They want high prices, but they don't want these kind of prices. So I think they'll start to pump a little bit more oil, but I'm, I'm stretching. Now, having said that, I do think there are things the administration and Congress could do to help with regard to inflation, not this year, but next year and the year after. And I'm, I'm mostly focused on the cost of housing, because that is the number one budget item for most American households. About a third of people's budget goes to paying rent or taking care of their home. And as we all know, rent rents are rising rapidly, double digit. House prices have been rising very rapidly and with high, higher mortgage rates, affordability has been crushed. We need more homes I and mean, we need more affordable homes. And so there are things that the president can do, of course, he'll need a little bit of cooperation from Congress and the Republicans, maybe on the tax side, there are some things you can do to get more housing. But that's the kind of thing I think I would be focused on if I were king for the, a day or a week or a month. It's not, I, I, there's not much I can, we can do now or in the next quarter or, or even towards the end of the year. That's, that's A lot of that's out of his control. It's a pandemic and the Russian invasion. But a little bit longer run, I think there are some things that can be done.
0: So- before people started started worrying about recession, that R word, and before we started worrying about inflation, the people there was some sense that folks were feeling okay, unemployment was down, we seemed to have been coming back from COVID, and all of a sudden we find ourselves plunged into this economic crisis of inflation and worries about recession. Now, you had a recent article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and you talked about that efforts to control inflation often can trigger a recession. Could you talk to us a little bit about that, help our listeners understand why the medicine may produce a (laughs) a disease that nobody's happy about?
1: Well, sure. I mean, the high inflation is at this up to this point largely about the pandemic and the Russian invasion, but the economy has been growing strongly and it is reaching full employment. Unemployment is 3.6% and probably headed lower in the next few months because there's very strong job growth. So there is the risk that the economy, as economists would say, it overheats, that labor markets are so tight, wage growth accelerates to a significant degree, businesses start passing that through. And even more serious would be if inflation expectations, what people think about future inflation start to rise. Because if workers and business people and investors all think inflation is going to be high and all likely it's going to end up being high because the worker is going to go to the boss, say, hey, you got to pay me more to commute to work. And the boss says, no problem, because they know they'll just pass that along to their customer in the form of higher prices. And you get into this self-reinforcing negative cycle. So, the Federal Reserve says we don't, we, we're not much we can do about the pandemic, not much we can do about Russian invasion of Ukraine and oil prices, but we can make sure that the economy doesn't blow past full employment and overheat. And we can also make sure that people continue to believe that in the future, inflation is coming back down, not that it's going to stay high. And they do that by raising interest rates. And rates have been incredibly low, record low. Up until earlier this year, and now all they're doing is normalizing those interest rates, bringing them back to something that'd be more consistent with an economy that's operating at full tilt and unemployment 3.6%. 3, 3. And in that process of raising interest rates, normalizing interest rates, that's when the economy is typically historically very vulnerable to things that can go wrong, particularly if rates rise very quickly. Like you can see it in the housing market, mortgage rates, 30-year fixed rate loans were going for I don't know, two six, two seven back a year ago. They're now five and a half. That's a big that's still five and a half in the grand scheme of things. Now, Paul, when you got your first mortgage, I know when I got my first mortgage, it was a lot higher than that, but it's still low. But it's big change in a short period of time. And that's causing real indigestion in the housing market. So the trick here is in, in, the, in the Fed's job is to raise rates fast enough, far enough to slow growth sufficiently to quell the high inflation or help quell and keep inflation expectations down, but not raise rates too fast, too far that just seizes the housing market, equity prices, stock market craters, and we that would be recession. And and, then historically when we're at this point in the business cycle and this dynamic is unfolding, recession often happens. So that's why people are hand-wringing reasonably about the recession, the risk of recession here in the next year or two.
0: Let me and well, let me oh, just follow up for a quick second sure. because w- what you've just said harkens back to what you said earlier, where what what could be done to deal with inflation is in the housing market. We need more affordable housing. Is 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 was your point? And now what we're talking about is the danger of rising interest rates cooling off what we need for housing to cure the inflation. So it's yeah. a rather vicious cycle. <sighs> of policymaking that poses a very, very distinct challenge for policymakers, the Fed, and everybody else who's, who, who's watching this. And the American people are, are, I think, have lost a little bit of confidence in the administration's ability. And we will probably get into that a little a little bit later. So it's a very precarious situation.
1: Yeah, you, you nail it. I mean, that's why recession risks are as high as they are and why there's so much hand-wringing and angst out there among economists, investors. People sense it, feel it. They know that this is going to be very tricky. In fact, that goes so far to say to avoid a recession, we'll need a little bit of luck uh, on the pandemic and how things unfold, Russia, Ukraine, and really deaf making by the Fed, threading that needle. I mean, you can use all kinds of analogies and metaphors, but threading the needle landing the plane on the tarmac whatever you want to say it's going to be it's going to be tricky and that's why recession risks are as high as they are
2: and yet you make a really a compelling argument i'd say in that philadelphia inquirer article that paul referenced a moment ago that at the very least our odds of avoiding recession are better than they were in the run up to the great recession in 2008 2009 paul was on the at least policymaking front lines of that as a member of Congress. And you remember all of the ingredients that were going into that kind of noxious meltdown that we experienced. But Mark, you you laid out that there are a number of factors at play right now in terms of the financial condition, both for individual Americans and for American businesses that at least indicate, hey, maybe the, the odds are, are more in our favor. Could you just walk through what that argument is? Why are things better than they were 14 years ago.
1: Yeah, sure. And so far I've been talking kind of darkly and I I'll blame that on Paul. He's kind of taking me down that path. You know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It I, always I, blame I, the politicians yeah.
2: and the lawyers. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: I am Easy. the dark I am the dark helmet. <laughs> and,
0: and by the way, I'm both a lawyer and a politician. Oh gosh. Or as no. I or as I'm, fo- as I'm as fond of saying when I when I retired from the law to go to Congress, I found the only profession where people thought less of me than they did when I was an attorney.
2: You also sold some some used cars for a while. No, I'm, I'm joking. No, Mark, please go ahead.
1: Actually, that's a good business right now. I don't know if you've been following <laughs> right, this. Right.
2: It's really but, good. By the way, no one's I fond like, of economists like, either. That's the a dismal profession.
1: I know, right? I know. You got to smile a lot. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the helps. Uh, yeah. yeah, But on a podcast, they can't really see. Does this go on YouTube? Maybe maybe like- Yeah, maybe. We'll,
2: we'll have some clips. You might be there watching you this. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this yeah. very moment. I'm going to put it on YouTube <laughs> and I'll put it on Twitter too. So- Oh, there you go watching this, look at what a nice face, world famous professor, Mark Zandy, economist Mark Zandy has. This is the kind of face you listen to.
1: Yeah, there you go. Well, so having said that the risks are high of recession, I think the odds remain that we make our way through without a recession, at least over the next year or two. That's as far as my crystal ball will take me at the moment. But that goes to the fact that the, what I would call fundamentals of the economy are good. Unlike The fundamentals of the economy prior to the financial crisis and Great Recession. The most obvious example of that, and we can talk about others, but the most obvious is the American household. I mean, Think about the American household's financial situation today. In addition to lots of jobs and low unemployment, they've got a lot of excess saving built up during the pandemic. Now, low-income households, obviously less so, and now they're burning through that excess saving. That's the saving above which they would have typically done if there had been no recession and no pandemic because they're sheltering in place or they got government support through stimulus checks and other things. So the lower-income households are, because of the high gas prices and food prices, starting to blow through that excess saving. But middle-income Americans and certainly high-income Americans are just rolling in cash. You got debt service, that's a percent of after-tax income that's going to servicing debt. That's as low as it's ever been in the data Mm -hmm. that we have. The other really positive development is most households have locked in these low rates. So through refinancing waves, They've gotten 30-year fixed-rate loans sitting at 3 3.5%, three and, and they're not going to rise with the rise in interest rates. So their debt payments are going to be relatively stable. Stock prices are down, but 15% from the peak at the beginning of the year. But think about the returns over the last five years and 10 years are double digit. I mean, it's been a fantastic market. It goes up and down and all around, but cutting through it all, people are a lot wealthier today than they were five or 10 years ago. And, of course, house prices have just gone skyward. Now, I expect some comeuppance there and certainly some of the markets that are most Jews, But nonetheless, they were up 20% last year on top of 20% before that. So people have a lot of equity. So you, I'm painting with a broad brush, obviously, Matt, and there's a lot of distinction between demographic groups and minority groups and income groups. But broadly speaking, the American household is sitting in fabulous financial shape. Compare that to 12, 13 years ago prior to the financial crisis and Great Recession. It was a complete mess. Debt was extraordinarily high. That service was at a record high. People had taken out these sub subprime, so-called subprime adjustable rate mortgages, meaning the ninja loans, ninja loans, negam loans. I mean, all kinds of wacko loans, not plain vanilla 30-year fixed rate, 15-year mortgage, which is what we're talking about now. But these wacko subprime loans, a lot of fraud, a lot of speculation in the housing market, in the equity market. So. Very different situation. So that's a fundamental. The fundamental of the American households is in a different place. And so I would say that would argue that the odds of going into recession are lower. And if we go into recession, that the severity of that downturn will be more modest. Certainly nothing compared to what we saw back in 2008, 2009 in that period.
2: Well, if you want to know the difference between an economist and a politician, it's that when a politician says the fundamentals of the economy are strong, as John McCain famously did in 2008, he gets lambasted. He gets, that's the biggest gaffe in history. But when on the basis of evidence, math, numbers, and strict analysis, Mark Zandi, as well as hindsight. Says it, and hindsight, and hindsight, like, when Mark Zandi says it, it's like, oh. Actually, you're, you're well, making a great point there, Mark, and I, I, I feel somewhat comforted.
1: Did, Matt, did you know that I worked on the McCain campaign?
2: You know, I did I'm, not I, know
1: that. I, yeah, yeah, I did. I was the economist that followed the, the statistics, and I, I might have told him that the-, the You gave him that. I have, you know what? <laughs> you I have gave him the line.
2: <laughs> about politicians listening too closely to economists. and there their you language. go. <laughs> but we're going to have to take a quick break on WKXL. We were talking about the risks of recession in the American economy and how- According to Mark Zandi and his recent article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, some of the fundamentals are certainly a lot stronger than they were 14 years ago. And in fact, at that time, in the run-up to the Great Recession, there were some fundamentals that weren't that bad. And Mark, you were just kind of admitting to the fact that you worked for John McCain, who famously kind of –
1: no, no, Matt, it, Matt, it's not admit, I embrace, I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's right. no, he was a great man. He was a great man. Come on. He was a great man. He, he was. was a great man. I mean, There's you could a lot to admire. With, and actually, uh, I am a Democrat, but I worked on that campaign because I admired him so much. And I also thought that he paid a lot more attention, obviously, to foreign policy. And that mm. the, before the financial crisis, it wasn't about the economy. It was about right. all the things that were going on overseas. And that's how I got involved in the campaign, because I felt that he had a pretty good grip on that. I also felt that, you know, his economic policy was a tabula rasa. I could have some impact there because there weren't strong views. So, but Zandi for president. Oh, yeah, right. There you go. Well, you see, this is this is what I was going to
2: just relate, which is there's it's important, listen to your economists, okay? Listen to economists. They, they smart economists have important things to tell you. The only thing you should be careful of if you're a candidate is don't get sucked into the messaging because I used to work for a politician Actually, I'll just say who it was. He won't be mad at me. The, the guy who eventually became the governor of Maine, John Baldacci, I worked for him when he was in Congress. Right. And he listened to an economist who was explaining that what you can do with goods is you can add value to them. In fact, that's, a, that's the basis of taxation in a lot of countries. You, you, you tax on the basis of how much value did you add to a physical good? And the economist was saying, you know, We could do the same thing with human capital. We could add value through education and training, and we could improve our workforce. And my boss thought that this was a great line. And so he went throughout the the campaign talking about how we had to add value to the people of Maine, which, as we were at pains to explain to him, it makes it sound like your future constituents are kind of worthless people. And that's not a great thing to say. (laughs) <laughs>
1: that's a good point. Oh, man. That, yeah, you you got to be careful. Yeah, yeah you got to be careful. All, <laughs> All right. And,
0: and yeah, but you also have to remember that a lot of people going to Congress who are making policy know absolutely nothing about economics yeah. or economists or the economy. Take me, for example. I was an accidental congressman, and they put me on financial services because. Rahm Emanuel thought I'd be able to raise a lot of money and get reelected, not because I knew a thing yeah. about banks or finances, but that's for another day. Great so,
1: committee, though you got particularly when you a were great there. Co- yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Well, we presided over the 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 Dodd Frank. Dodd Frank.
1: Yeah. Dodd yeah. Frank and so Barney Frank was the, led the way when you were there. Barney was yeah. my chair. Yeah, he, um, he he's he's such a great guy, interesting guy. He yeah.
0: he's is a fascinating guy. Yeah, I, I haven't I, seen him in a while. Uh, he's, uh, he li- he lives up in Maine. Yep, and he's doing okay. He's doing okay. He's, uh, I think he's enjoying life outside of Congress. Good for him. Uh, as am yeah. I. As
1: yeah, as am <laughs> right. I. You look so, a lot.
0: <laughs> so let me let me go to an article in the Atlantic. They, they there was a recent headline that said basically the stock market seemed to prefer COVID to inflation. Now, we had a pretty strong market in the second half of 2020 through 2021. Then things have started to sell off. And people are beginning to talk about the bear of the markets raising their heads. And a lot of people thought that we were overextended anyway. But what what's produced all this strong market 2020 through 2021 during COVID, then the sell off?
1: policy. Of course, the market sold off big time when the pandemic hit back in March and April, cratered. But between, say, the bond probably was late March, early April. I'm speaking from memory, so I may have missed it by a day or two. But then it was pretty much kind of straight up to the start of this year. And that goes to the Federal Reserve, lowering interest rates to zero, and then quantitative easing, meaning buying long-term bonds to bring down long-term interest rates. We talked about the 30-year fixed-rate loan That was record low, 2.6%. So low rates, really positive for the market, particularly for tech stocks, because their earnings are out way into the future. And so if you have a low interest rate, the present value, I won't go into any detail unless you want to, but the present value of that future stream is worth a lot more today. And then fiscal policy, the lawmakers, first Trump administration in Congress and then the Biden administration in Congress, anted up $5 trillion worth of support Stimulus checks, UI benefits, rental assistance, PPP money for small business, help to airlines. And that brought the economy roaring back. In fact, the economy is in record time back to full employment, right? Two years after the pandemic hit. It's, just, it's an amazing achievement when you think about it, that we got nailed by this massive, unpredictable pandemic. And here we are with a 3.6%. And that goes to policy. And of course, investors like that, the stock investors like both the low rates and the strong growth. But we came into this year and the pandemic, instead of going away, scrambled our supply chains and labor markets, the Delta wave crushed Asia and caused inflation to accelerate. And then the Fed had to start normalizing interest rates, raising rates. And even from low levels, you have to raise rates. And then the thing that really kind of did us in was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That was just off the radar screen. And that actually was, I thought when that happened, that was obviously not good for the US economy, but it wasn't. Like the big that big a deal we're talking about the effect of oil prices and in the U.S. we produce a lot of oil so that's a it helps the energy industry it hurts American consumers but the net of all that is a small negative but what it did was it it conflated with the already high inflation and inflation expectations jumped people then said oh my gosh inflation is going to be high for a long time and that's when the Fed went on DefCon one and said we're not going to raise rates slowly and steadily we're going to Jack them up really quickly, and of course that is very hard for a stock investor, for the economy to digest, as we talked, and for stock investors to get their minds around, and the, the, unless they've sold off.
2: What really jumps out to me in everything you just said is how much of economics really depends on, it's just an aggregation of human perceptions and biases and oh. everything that Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky won a Nobel Prize for demonstrating through their creation of behavioral economics. When I studied economics in the early 1990s as an undergrad, we didn't cover as much behavioral economics. And I was taught a lot of rational expectations. Look, people aren't rational, neither are markets, and, and neither are a lot of these dynamics and economics which leads me to my next
1: question here's something that by the way can me. i say though matt Please in jump regard, in. yeah Please. look yeah i totally agree with you and i think we underestimate as young economists it's all about the math and the models and right you know, those are important but that's not that's necessary to understand what's going on it's not sufficient because at the end of the day it's about how people view the world and think about their futures and the recession is at the end of at the end of the story a loss of faith it's a loss of faith by you, as I, you and I as consumers, that we're going to have our jobs. It's a loss of faith by as you and I as business people, that someone's going to buy the stuff that we produce. If we, if we lose that faith and we run for the proverbial bunker, that's, that's a recession. And right. by the way, that's why it makes me nervous when you've got CEOs of companies saying hurricanes, and I feel really bad about things right. because that could actually become self-fulfilling. We could drive ourselves into the ditch. Really exactly. important.
2: Exactly. No, exactly. It's the it's the Shakespeare formulation is nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And so the Federal Reserve is at pains to try to understand th- this kind of mindset. And they published their annual report on the economic well-being reported, at least, of American households in 2021. It's an annual report. And they find in this report that self-reported financial well-being, how how good you feel about your own financial situation increased to the highest percentage that they have shown in the hmm. nine-year history of the survey. Almost 80% of Americans in this survey said that their personal financial well-being was at least okay, if not good or excellent. And about half, about half of Americans said that their local economy where they live was either good or excellent. But only 24% said that the national economy is good. And as you pointed Mm. out a few minutes ago, Mark, you can get a third of Americans to say that anything Mm. is true, and you get less than that saying the national economy is good. And this has been bothering me. This has been really bothering me for a long time because in the mix of economic indicators that economists like to look at, look, the jobs market is unbelievable. As you just said, we just roared back, certainly a lot more strongly than our European peers in terms of the indicators of economic health GDP, which I guess was off in the second quarter, has generally been performing fairly well. The only major factor, and it's a big one, I admit it's a big one, but the only major factor that seems adverse really is inflation. And so you have this bizarre situation where people feel really good. I mean, 80% of people say they feel really good about their personal finances and about half say, yeah, my local economy, good or excellent. The national economy, Awful, totally I, awful. Why do you think that is?
1: That's fascinating. Which survey is that? I missed. This that. is the
2: Federal Reserve's own survey. Oh, now I've got some homework. Yeah, I better, no, you know, I got to go look and do some that. research.
1: Yeah, is that is that the New York Fed or the Board of Governors? Do you know? Oh, is I'll it do. the
2: New York Federal Reserve? I'll I will send the, oh, yeah, you. I will send I'm Send you the survey. I'll That's fascinating. Are, although I will say that that is backed up by other research that I've also looked at at people's self-reported perception, their, hmm. their own perception of their own economic well-being.
1: Well, I'll give you I give you three atmospheric depressants. One is you mentioned inflation. That's just like you know, for many Americans, who have never seen anything like this. I mean, we didn't. We've not. It's been two generations since we had this kind of inflation. So this is like. New for people. And this is, this really stinks. I mean, it's very painful. But I got to put 100 bucks into my gas tank because that's double what it was. And that means 50 bucks less than for a ball game or a restaurant or whatever it is. Second is the pandemic. I think the pandemic has really been tough because you go back a year ago when those vaccines rolled out, I think everyone thought this thing was over. The president gets up, gives a speech. Go enjoy your family's July 4th, Freedom Day. And then Delta hits and we're back into reality. And I think that really upended people's thinking about the world. And here we are still kind of dealing, grappling with it. And third is the politics, right? Now, I know all these surveys, if you break it out by Democrat and Republican, the Republicans are really, really upset and pessimistic, right? Compared. And that's not unusual. When when, when Trump was president, it was kind of reversed and, but it's flipped in the other direction. So our politics. Feel like they're so discordant and decis- divisive and corrosive that it, it kind of undermines our thinking about the world, and and thus reflected in these kinds of surveys that you're that you're mentioning. But just a hypothesis.
2: Well, I'll quickly back you up on that last one. Paul's heard me say this before. I got really interested in why Americans' assessment of how things are going has become so downright sour, and I've heard pollsters say, oh, it's it's unusual how many Americans are reporting that they think things are off on the wrong track. So I just downloaded the Gallup survey data and just popped it into Excel. Do you know what the median, or I guess approximately average, do you know what the median proportion of Americans who say that things are on the wrong track has been over the last 50 years? 68%. Oh, really? And over the last 10 years, oh, interesting. it's 71%. We have oh. not thought that things are awesome in America with some very brief exceptions in, in about my lifetime. I am I'm, I'm almost 50. So literally since the moment I was born, we've all been bummed out about America.
1: Yeah. Paul, Matt knows the data better than I do. I'm
0: getting a little nervous here. <laughs> yes. Well, listen, there, there was a reason he was my chief of staff. I went to law school cause I couldn't count and I needed somebody who was really good at really linear good. thinking and statistics and economics, let alone, being able to manage people well, but, but Matt Robeson is a real find in the world of economics. He's, he, he's, he's a, he's a secret weapon.
1: Yeah. I would have to say, yeah, I mean, i we, I have a podcast called inside economics and I have a, a statistics game where we spout a statistic and we each other, uh, other participants try to determine what that statistic is. And I, I was thinking you were gonna do that to me. Oh, know? oh, oh, that would be <laughs> and I I would not have said sixty eight percent. I would not I'm have said busted. 68%. You know, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Two things. First
2: of all, all of our listeners go subscribe to Mark Zandy's podcast. That's the
1: oh, first that's thing I'm going to do. You didn't need to do that. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. I'm yeah. doing it. I'm doing it okay. because
2: that sounds awesome. And I'm enough of a nerd that that sounds like an awesome game. Oh, you'd love I'm it. Gonna, You're into the suggest my wife that, love that we it. play tonight. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. look up a statistic. <laughs> We're going to do this at the dinner table. You watch. My kids are going to absolutely <laughs> he, be furious. He never
0: bothered to do that with me because he knows that I, I don't know a thing about anything.
2: You'd think it was a statistic about guitars.
0: <laughs> I, know, I know.
2: So listen, there's <laughs> been a backpedaling.
0: From the White House about whether they were late to recognize the potential for high inflation. There's at least been some backpedaling, which is a little bit unusual. I heard that the Treasury Secretary Yellen agreed, for example, with Larry Summers last year that the American Rescue Plan he denied
1: that, by the way. She came out publicly and said, no, that was not the case. Uh, oh, well, yeah, Anyway, go ahead.
2: And, yeah, well, yeah. Carefully yeah. worded statement, though. Yeah. Carefully, oh, carefully, Was worded. it? Oh, was it really? It was, I, it was what uh, you'd call a, an, in journalism a non denial denial. Oh, okay. A non, uh, okay and so a, okay,
0: a a a, 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 a well crafted, carefully worded denial in mm. which she apparently intimated that maybe she was misquoted when people have understood her to say maybe the ARP was too big and okay. could contribute to inflation. Okay, fair enough. So, so the question for you today is what do you think the role of federal spending in 2021 was in causing inflation was Larry Summers, right? No, that it was too big and that that's why we have inflation.
1: No, I don't, I don't think you can connect the dots between the inflation we have today. And the ARP, the American rescue plan back a year ago, I think it's directly related to supply chain disruptions, vehicle prices, your poster child for that. And, oil prices natural gas prices and you just kind of decompose the increase in inflation over the past year and you can just trace it back to those those dynamics the american rescue plan i don't think has played a role the other the other two other points on that in that regard first, you know if the arp is affecting inflation it should be have caused a juice, much higher levels of demand but if you go look at consumer spending today it is precisely where you would have expected it to be if there had been no pandemic. It got crushed when we got hit by the pandemic, it's come back, but the level of consumption, now this is across all spending, goods and services, it's equal to the same, if you just drew a trend line pre-pandemic and took it out and took the growth rate out, it's exactly where it should be. And third, what about all that inflation overseas? I mean, go look at the UK or Canada or Australia, their inflation rates are within spitting distance of ours, and they're accelerating straight up. So, are we saying the ARP caused their inflation too? No, I mean, it goes to something that is global. And what's global? The pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, no, I, I don't put any weight. Again, there's a long list of reasons for inflation. Uh, you may put somewhere at the bottom, maybe some vestige of the ARP is playing some role here. Like it's also this this the this narrative that it's corporate greed and gouging i think that's way oversold no, i think that's way at the bottom not that the president and the administration and in congress shouldn't be calling out a behavior that feels like people are taking advantage it's that's that's in their remit they got to make sure that everyone's playing by the rules and not not cheating and taking advantage but if you kind of look at things, you're very hard pressed to say that that's that's a playing a big role here. So it's the pandemic and the Russian invasion. The ARP is a bit player in all of this.
0: You, you know, Robeson, I'm thinking I'm I'm thinking like a candidate. Okay, here I am. It's summer before the midterms. I'm getting ready to go out and speak to all my constituents. And it feels a little bit like I want to carry a chicken wire fence, like in a bad bar, the kind my my bar band plays in, put up a chicken wire fence to keep the eggs in the beer bottles from hitting, hitting, you know, hitting me. Right. Like in the blues brothers, they go to the bar and they play
2: both kinds, country and Western. Exactly.
0: Country and Western. And, and trying to argue to people, no, 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 it wasn't the American rescue plan. That was really good for you. It was the pandemic and it's the war in Ukraine, over which we didn't have any control. I'm really okay. You wanna send me back there to do some more for you. But I don't, We're gonna I don't do know. this.
2: We're gonna do this in another podcast where I go after why presidential approval rating is the stupidest statistic in polling today. It's, it's not, people are not saying what pollsters purport to say that they're saying. They're hearing a very different question. What they're hearing is, are you happy? And, and what they're answering is, no, yeah. I'm unhappy. No,
0: nobody's ever happy.
1: But 71,
0: you know, 71% of people for the past 50 years think we're on the wrong track.
1: I mean, if anyone asked me my advice, I'd say stick to your guns, please. I mean, the reality is it's the pandemic and the invasion. It's not the ARP. And just to even hint that it is, you know, opens a door that shouldn't be opened. I mean, it just makes people think and, it, and, and inappropriately so. It's it's not It's not about the American Rescue Plan.
2: Well, lest you think that your expertise is only in economics, I will tell you that one of the smartest media consultants that Paul or I have ever worked with, his, his late motif was never back up, never back up. Yeah. And you're echoing that. So good on you, Mark. Of course,
1: I, uh, but of course you got to believe you can tell. I believe well, you got to believe also brought you also believe in you. Yeah. It, yeah. Yes. Right.
2: When you it made that argument, through. you weren't just cutting from a whole, like you, I, yeah. gosh, I just love an argument where you, you actually show your homework. It's, it's all right. Let me ask you this looking forward. If the ARP was mostly on the good side of the ledger in terms of helping the American economy, wasn't the cause of inflation, and was partially responsible for some of the spectacular performance that we've seen in roaring back economically, let's look out in the longer term. At the end of 2021, you downgraded your forecast of U.S. economic growth in large part, I mean, not just, part of it was the pandemic, the ongoing broiling of the, of, the, of the pandemic, but part of it was because of the failure of the Build Back Better bill to come together. So what should the U.S. Be, government be doing right now to fuel longer term growth? And can they actually do that in a non-inflationary way?
1: Yeah, we got to focus on the supply side of the economy and expand the productive capability of the economy. And by the way, just as a call out, the the, the president and the administration, along with with Congress, Republicans and Democrats, got a trillion dollars in additional money for infrastructure, which I was just listening to the radio. There's a big project in my hometown of Philadelphia. It's going to come to fruition. It's going to make a big deal for a lot of communities in the, in, the, in the Philadelphia region. And that's, I think, something that we'll see in lots of communities across the country. So that, that is a slam dunk positive, expands the economy's cap- capabilities, reduces inflationary pressures. I mentioned housing. That was part of Build Back Better. And I think we'll come back to that because there are some tax changes that resonate with both Democrats and, critically, Republicans that could generate more low-income housing for low-income households. tech credits. I won't again. I won't go into detail unless you ask. But new new market tax credits. So those kinds of things. I do think we we really do need to focus on climate risk. I mean, I I, I think that's becoming a very serious problem, which are going to be have enormous costs to households and businesses. It's starting to show up already. You can see it in insurance rates. It's affecting the ability to sure. develop in different parts of the country. And so climate, the actual climate risk may be 25, 30 years off, but that's in the horizon of these insurance companies that are thinking about the risk. So that, that cost is going to come back on us and we need to start thinking about those things. I, and I, I am sympathetic to things that help uh, make it easier for people to go to work. Childcare, very important. Elder care very important. Not only does it help people's lives, but it makes it easier for people to actually say, hey, I, I can go get a job now because I don't have to worry about T- taking care of my children or my, my elderly parents. So these are the things that we're in Build Back Better. And I think if you, f- if you think about it through the prism of what is going to Im- increase the, our ability to produce things, to increase the supply side of the economy, that is a very positive thing, it's a long-term thing and it's it's anti-inflationary, it brings inflation in.
2: All right, so we've got about a minute left, which is great. I get to ask you a lightning round question that All you right. can't possibly answer, which is which is my <laughs> favorite kind of question. Well, maybe you can. What? You're an economist. What do you wish people who are not economists understood a little bit better about either economics or the u s. economy and how it works?
1: Well, I, I just, and I wish people would be somewhat forgiving and realize there are things that they don't know and don't like I don't opine about what's going on overseas because i I really don't know. I mean, i I may have a view. But it's not like I'm going to go out there and beat people over the head because they have a different because I don't really know. And so, but I, I think you should be a, just a little bit more forgiving and, and uh, just think about a little bit more deeply what others are saying about things that they know and have thought about for a long periods of time. That, that's the only thing I'd say, that you just got, you just got to be a little, I use the word forgiving. That's not quite the right word, but you get my drift.
2: Well, I'll tell you what I've learned in this discussion is that I need to subscribe to Mark Zandi's podcast. And I hope people will do that and subscribe to Beyond Politics. Mark, thank you so much for a delightful conversation.
1: Hey guys, you, you're great. And you're a better salesman than I am, Matt. So I appreciate that. So thank you.